This morning, I want you to, to think back with me two weeks, whether you listen on the radio or you're here in-house on a Sunday morning. Uh, two weeks ago, we had a conversation, a discussion about one of my favorite characters in the Bible. This is one of those, like I'm asking you to reach deep, to go backwards and to remember who was the character, who was the man. And I'll give you one part in the Old Testament, which I know doesn't exactly narrow it down a ton. There's a lot of Old Testament people. But in the Old Testament, who's the individual we talked about two weeks ago? Gideon, there we go. One of my favorites, right? And I know it's been two weeks, so let me give you kind of the nutshell version to get to where we ended with Gideon last time. Remember, we talked about Gideon for a week, and then we had Mother's Day, and then kind of we're circling back to finish up the story of Gideon, right? If you remember, he begins as being the weakest, as, as being found in a wine press threshing wheat because he and his people have been hiding from the Midianites, uh, other groups as well, but primarily the Midianites, the Midianites were horrible people who just pillaged everything that the Israelites had. They would take their wheat and their grain. They would steal their crops. They would come in and take their, um, their stock, their uh, livestock back with them. It was just a horrible existence for them. And so Gideon is in a wine press threshing wheat when an angel of the Lord comes down and says, remember, the Lord is with you, O mighty warrior. Says calling the mighty warrior the guy who's hiding in a wine press threshing weed. It was like, you know, who me? Who are you talking about? It would be the response we would give. But as the story moves forward, we remember Gideon was told to tear down his father's Asherah poles, to tear down the altars to the bells. And Gideon goes from that. And, and sure enough, he does it. But, you know, he's a little bit nervous about doing that. So instead of just tearing down the Asherah poles, he does it at night you know, to kind of like fly under the radar. And he's a little bit scared about destroying those things, but he doesn't. And then later on in the story, we read about him being told to put together an army to deliver the, the Israelites from the hand of Midian. And he starts with some 32,000 people. And then God says, it's going to be too many. And if you have that many warriors, you're going to think you want under your own power. And I need you to know that I did this. So tell everybody who's scared to go home. Right? Do you remember how many people went home when he told them, if you're scared, go home? 22,000. He's left with 10,000, right? And then when that, when that happens, it, God still looks back and says, your army's still too big. You're still going to think that you won this battle. So if you're going to trust me and know that I won this battle for you, I need you to send all of your men down to the water to get something to drink. And it talks about the men that drank by bowing their heads to the water and those who brought water up to their faces. And, and it was the, the ladder that he chose. And there were only 300 of them. And, and the story continues to where, you know, the night that Gideon is told that it is time to go take over Midian. Remember, Midian, as they look over them, they're looking down into the valley and they're kind of up in the hills and it describes them as they were as many as the locusts. That doesn't mean much in our world because we haven't experienced a great locust plague in a long time. Uh, some pockets of the state of Tennessee get them from time to time. And when it happens, if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. If you go through a town and all the ladies are walking around and they have Dollar General bags over their heads as they're going to the store and back. Like, there you go. That's the kind of, like, it's that kind of a thing. You know, I know some of you that, like, <laughs> my wife is one of them. She does not appreciate the flying creatures that God made. You know what I mean? Like she does not appreciate them flying around and she's convinced. Y'all know the little brown beetles that are flying around this time of year? She's convinced they hate her. Like that she is the target. 
to the extent if one of them flies in the door, I've seen her in the living room before, one of them flies in the door and she look up and she goes, nope, 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 nope. And she tears off to the bathroom or to the bedroom until I get rid of the brown beetle, right? It's like that times thousands. As many as the locusts, like these flying insects. It says their camels were like as many as the sands of the seas. I mean, like you're talking about this very intimidating army. And as Gideon is told, tonight is the night, God says to him, but if you're nervous, take your servant Parah and go down into the camp and listen. Let me, let me show you. You remember that story? He goes down and as they get into the outskirts of the camp, which would kind of be like suburbia, if you will, thinking about comparing it to a city. And, and as he gets there, there's this, this two men in a tent and they're talking. One of them says he woke up from a dream. He said, I had a dream that a loaf of barley rolled down into the tent of the Midian and it demolished the tent. And the guy beside him goes, it must be Gideon. That's, that's a sign. That's, that's Gideon, son of Joah. Like, that's the guy. There was something that God had already been doing in that camp to make them afraid of Gideon who was coming their way. And so Gideon heard that again. In every part of the story so far, you're hearing Gideon work through his fears and trusting God, right? Working through being called a mighty warrior. Working through how do you destroy the Asherah poles. Working through, how do you go down into the camp and destroy? And so then we read those 300 men. Gideon goes back, wakes up his men and says, tonight is the night, it's time to go. And they stand around up in the hills up above the camp. They smash the pots that they have been given, those pitchers. They have a torch that's being hidden by the pitcher and they have trumpets. And then they shout this great thing out into the, into the darkness. Do you remember what the, what the phrase was that they shouted out into the darkness? For the sword of the Lord and for Gideon. There you go. And so for the sword of the Lord and for Gideon, it says that men got up out of their tents. They had waited late enough in the night by this time that things were dark. Fires mostly had burned out, maybe some smoldering fires. And yet when you read this, there's several things that took place that are just bizarre. It says that some men ran and other men's wo men woke up and began to fight each other, not knowing who the enemy was. Have you ever been so scared you wake up, you don't know who you are, and it's just like there's that, that defensive posture that you get in. Like They woke up in the night hearing trumpets, looking up in the hills, and there's torches lit, and they're hearing trumpets blast, and men are shouting for the sword of the Lord and for Gideon, the guy that we've been afraid of, the guy that like whatever planting of, of mindset had happened in the army, they, they were afraid of Gideon at some level, and so... When it happens, they begin to fight each other and many men fell to each other's swords. Other men ran off and we pick up the story this morning in Judges chapter 7. If you would, go ahead and turn there with me. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord calls the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Beth Shittah towards Zerarah as far as the border of Abel Meholah near Taboth. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites. Seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Beth Barah. So the men of Ephraim were called out, and they seized the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb. Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. 
Folks, when you read the story of what's going on, it is mass chaos. And then when everything begins to kind of mass chaos for the Midianites, and when it begins to break down for them, they begin to run. Then Gideon starts involving the other tribes and sending word, cut them off here, shut them down this direction, capture these individuals. And you read about the different tribes who are now coming out. Did you notice out of the hill country? Remember how I told you most of the Israelites had gone up to live in caves they gone up to hide from the Midianites, right? They're coming back down to take back over, to, 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 to take their land in pursuit. The Ephraimites get a little bit angry, by the way. I won't read every passage to you this morning. But in the pursuit process, the Ephraimites get a little bit angry in the next few verses. And they say, why didn't you call us to be a part of this? Ephraim was, was angry that, that Gideon hadn't invited them to be a part of this thing that was taking place in this action and it says that they, they challenged him vigorously. When Gideon continues to move forward, eventually Ephraim kind of makes peace, or the Ephraimites make peace with Gideon's answer. And then as Gideon continues to chase, he's chasing these two individuals named Zebah and Zalmunah. It's an interesting group because he, he seems to be very focused on capturing them. Now, they're, they're kings. So understand, like, if you're going to defeat a people, these are some powerful people to make sure you catch. But there's a little bit more to it than just that. On the, in the pursuit action, you read Gideon, he shows up to the men of Succoth, all right? Uh, you can read it, some of our Sukoth. Uh, as you read, it'll be either S-U-K-K-O-T-H or S-U-C-C-O-T-H. But regardless, he shows up, and you, you may not know how to plug these people in. He says to them, give my men some bread, for they are exhausted. And the men of Sukoth say back to him, have you already caught Zeba and Zalmona? And when they ask him, they also say, why should we give you any food? It's this interesting exchange between them. Gideon has already routed most of the, the Midianite war, and now they're chasing the rest of the armies and chasing the rest of the people that have fled, trying to, to end all of it, to, to you know, capture and destroy the army. And as they're, they're chasing after them, obviously they're getting tired. They're, it even says in this section of Scripture, it's still the 300 who are chasing these, these, this specific group of individuals. And these men have the audacity to say, even though Gideon has already proven and is continuing to prove, they have the audacity to say, until you catch him, we're not going to give you anything. Like, what a, what a frustrating answer. I mean, like, can you imagine being Gideon executing what, what his God has called you to do and in the process of making that happen? What's even more frustrating? Do you know who the men of Sukkoth are? They're from the tribe of Gad. These are his brothers, his cousins, if you will. Like, these are his family, and yet even still his family is not taking care of him, saying to him, essentially, you don't deserve it. I wonder sometimes in this story, like, have they also written off Gideon to the point that he's the weakest from the weak tribe? Or like, what's the dynamic taking place here? But regardless of what that dynamic may be, Gideon, very, very frustrated with them, continues on. He says to this in Judges chapter 8, verse 7, he says these words, Then Gideon replied, Just for that, when the Lord has given Zebah and Zalmona into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. By the way, um, you need to recognize uh, some of you who enjoy the art of trash talking, the Old Testament is full of it, okay? Um, some of you who get around each other and you start goofing off, you start talking trash, 
Uh, as a matter of fact, going back to what I told you earlier this past weekend about uh, with uh, JC and playing cornhole and those sorts of things, uh, when JC started catching fish, there were other guys who were up here fishing around other places. And so I started yelling up the river, hey, y'all come down here. JC found them. The guy who hadn't fished in 15 years, they're down here, you know. And, you know, JC's down there chuckling with his fish in hand heading towards the cooler, you know. And then later on, there's a cornhole game that's going on. And I, I remember it was um, uh, Noah, who is Mike Miller's son, and, uh, and Lawton are playing uh, cornhole. And they're kind of playing a, a 1v1 game. And I started off, I said, hey, when y'all get done, you let us know because me and the other preacher, we're going to tear you down. Like, it's coming. We're coming for you, you know, and trash talking back and forth. And then, then we start playing, and then Brian Bumpus starts trash talking, and I turn around, and guess who Brian Bumpus has chosen as his cornhole partner? JC. So anyway, trash talking continues. And if you enjoy that kind of trash talking, you need to know that, like, I, I'm telling you throughout the Bible, Look, as a matter of fact, this guy says, like, I'm going to beat you with briars and thorns, essentially. You go back to David, who takes on Goliath, and he's shouting across the battlefield, I'm going to cut your head off and feed it to the birds. Go back and read the stories. This is how the conversations go back and forth between these people. Like, there's absolute, I'm going to come back with desert thorns and briars. My grandfather tells me years ago, my grandfather passed away several years ago at about 95, I believe, he was born in about uh, 1930, somewhere 1928, uh, so he was a, a child of growing up in the Depression, multiple brothers and sisters. And he told me one time when I was a kid, he was pointing out something. He said, now, son, stay away from that plant over there, the one with the purple flowers on top. Have y'all seen around here about this time of year, you get plants that launch up and they've got purple flowers and they look pretty from a distance, but what are they? Thistle. You know what I mean? So my grandfather, he started laughing. He said, when we were boys, we used to have a thing we called a man test to figure out which brother was weaker. And I said, okay. And he said, we would lock left hands and then grab the roots of a thistle plant, take our shirts off, and begin to wail on each other. And whoever let go was the weak one. Well, you, let's get this established. May your soul rest in peace. But you're both idiots. That's a dumb idea. You know what I mean? Like, there's got to be a... Because even when you win, you still lose. You know what I mean? Like, you're not getting out of this. And so, like, that was their... I, I picture this, I'm going to come back and beat you with briars. You understand? Like, with desert... That's what he says back to them of, like, what's going to happen? You should have taken care of me. And then he goes forward with that. And he goes to a place called Penuel. And guess what? He gets the same answer from Penuel as he does from Sukkoth. Except Gideon says back to them, not the briars and the desert thorns, I will tear down this tower, he says, which is an interesting thing. He's still in pursuit, you all, still trying to execute what God's called him to do. And now he's having to argue and fight amongst his own people because they won't feed him. They won't take care of him as he's trying to take care of the Midianites who have been destroying them for years. And he says back to them, I will tear down this tower. People have speculated for years, but the leading theory is they had built a tower to be able to see whenever the enemy was coming in. I told you they were living in hiding and they were afraid. And so he was essentially telling them, I will tear down that which you have used to protect yourself. That which you've used as your, as your tower for watch, I will come back and remove that. Folks, these gentlemen that in these groups he was talking to, these people that he was dealing with in pursuit of these two kings, he's so focused on these two kings and he gets no help from the people of Sukkoth and Penuel. And then we read, continuing on, I'll let you read this part of it. You just kind of wonder the question, like, why in the world 
Oh, my apology. I, I, that'll be on the next slide. You know, how in the world are these two individuals so important? Like, why is it that he's chasing after them so much? And then it gets to the point where they have caught, where they have been caught. This, this Zebah and Zalmunah, they've been caught. And this is what we read in verse 18. Then he asked Zebah and Zalmunah, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? Men like you, they answered, each one with the bearing of a prince. That may not mean much to you, but let me tell you what Gideon says in his reply. Those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. As surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. You want to know why he's chasing Zabah and Zamana? These men have killed his brothers. That's the reason they're a big deal. I, he is absolutely in a place of passion chasing these men down. At the, at the culminating event of this story, we find they have... They have, of course, he returns back, by the way, and absolutely does rout the men that he told them he was going to go back and beat them with briars and those sorts of things. But after all of that is over with, and Gideon has proven that through God, he has been the one who has delivered them from Midian, we find this in Judges chapter 8, and this is where the next part of Gideon's story really takes a turn. The Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son, and your son's sons, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. What an incredible offer. Like, they respond after having been delivered from something that was numbered as many as the locusts, camels as many as the sands. And Gideon responds back, I've put it in bold on the screen in front of you, because it's one of the greatest one-line deliveries, one of the greatest answers in the Bible when there is a, a question being answered, in the Old Testament, you've got to put this in, in one of the top two, three, four best answers ever given, right? Other than the words of Jesus, like this is one of the most solid answers that could have possibly been given. And Gideon responds back to them and says this, I will not rule over you, nor will my sons rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. What an incredible, incredible answer. I mean, like, have you ever had one of those times in life when you just said the thing you meant to say at the right time, you, you had the right words? I mean, this is it. This is the time when Gideon answers beautifully the culminating event of all of these things, and yet Gideon continues to talk. Have you ever had one of those times when you did really, really well, and it would have been better if you just stopped talking? Any of you continue to talk when you needed to have just Shut up, for lack of better words. I understand the irony that there's a preacher asking you if you talk too much. Okay? Outside of that, though, have you ever, have you ever had one of those times, Gideon, if he would have just kept quiet, the downfall was immediately following this. You look back and you wonder, like, where did we see the downfall? Did you see things happening before? I'll read the downfall to you here in a moment, but before you even get to the downfall, it's like, what, is, what are the, the, maybe the red flags? Is it wrong of him to say to the men of Sukkoth or Penuel that if you will not help in what I'm doing, I will punish you? Was that, a, was that an error? Was it wrong? I didn't read this part to you, but was it wrong when he finally caught those two kings and he told his young son, draw your sword and kill these two men? And it says that the young son froze. He didn't draw his sword because he was a young boy. And then the two men who were the kings who had been caught, said back to them, then you need to be the one to finish the job. And so Gideon finishes the job. I wonder as I look back, like, 
What were the indicators that, that even though Gideon had this great one line, folks, I need you to know, even though you may have answered well in life, even though you may have done the right thing in life, it does not mean that evil is going to leave you alone. Amen? Not going to leave you alone. As a matter of fact, here's what we read in verse 24. And he said, after this great answer, you all, you notice that was verse 22 and 23. This is the very next thing. This is a continuation when he should have kept his mouth shut. And he says this, I do have one request. Each of you give me an earring from your share of the spoil or the plunder. They answered, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment and each of them threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Any of you know what an ephod is? It's a symbolic cloak like a, an outer covering, if you will. One that has been made very ornate, uh, has been used with fine linens oftentimes and in great um, precious things like gold, as we read in this one, or, or adorning and in, in, in hanging and draped around it. But the, the issue is not that this is, a, that this is a, a beautiful cloak. The issue is like, what is the purpose of the ephod? The man who wears the ephod, as we read in numerous other Old Testament places, See, the ephod is the symbolism, is the symbolic thing of the presence of God being draped over a person. And you may think to yourself, as you would think kindly of, of Gideon, that like, well, he has been the person of God. He, I hear you, but be careful as you justify Gideon's actions. Because what, what you realize as you look back at history, folks, you can be a dictator, you can be a ruler, you can be a mighty warrior. But if you want to control people, you control their access to God. You control their access to God in eternity, and you have people at a level that a dictator will never have. Because people on this earth understand, even in the short term, what you may do to me is here on this earth. But when you start speaking or invoking that you have the power to influence whether or not God speaks to them, blesses them, takes care of them, and what their eternity will look like, folks, when it says they played the harlot, it says that they sold themselves out, that they, they began to prostitute themselves, depending on how in which translation that you read. It was a massive downfall of Gideon to say, I don't want to be your king. I don't want to be your earthly ruler, but I will be and my town will be and my family will be your access to God. You will have to come through us. It's a temptation as old as Adam and Eve. Folks, why did Eve first in the garden, why did, why did she first take that bite of the fruit, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Because she wanted to, to control. She wanted to, to be like God. She wanted to be the one. It was that, that selfish nature taking place. And if there is a place, if there is an aspect, and especially to those of us, to those of us who have been in the church for a while, if there's a place that evil has a success rate of creeping into our lives, it is it giving you the false hope that you need to continue to be in control, that you need to continue to be the one to hold the power, as opposed to yielding to who God is. This morning, we're going to close our services in what is the antithesis to selfishness, which means in just a few moments, we're going to distribute communion elements, and we're going to be reminded of the contrast 
of Gideon wanting an ephod, the contrast from Eve wanting to have the knowledge of good and evil and to be like God, and the contrast of our own lives when we oftentimes want to take care of ourselves or think about things that are us, and the life that Jesus Christ calls us to, which is a life of laying ourselves down and yielding to the will of the Heavenly Father. This morning, we close by holding on to elements that remind us of what Jesus calls us to. And so this morning, I'd invite you to stand if you would. We're going to begin to form lines here in just a moment. I'm going to ask David and Robin to come up and help me by serving communion. Our musicians are going to play some uh, instrumental behind us as we move. But for the next few moments, this will be quiet, holy space and holy moments in which you will filter from the uh, rows that you're in toward the outside. You'll come forward, pick up a small cracker and a small cup of juice, and then return back to your, cha to your chairs. I would invite you to do this, if you would. As you hold on to those elements, begin allowing the Holy Spirit to do His work and asking the question, what are the things of control and power that I hold on to? What things might I need to, to, to offer back to you in the places of control, places of, of decisions in life? And maybe as you hold on to those elements, reflecting on a, on a Savior who was fully submitted to the will of the Heavenly Father, maybe we find ourselves challenged by that as well. As you hold the elements, I'm going to ask a couple of things to take place. One, uh, for our instrumentalists, I think it's important that you're able to take communion with us as well, and I appreciate you serving us. I've left a couple of elements here. Uh, Ms. Kate, if you don't mind handing those out, I would appreciate that as I speak with the rest of our congregation. These things represent the absolute opposite of the temptation that we have from evil to serve ourselves. They represent the absolute opposite of having control over our own lives and trying to do things that benefit specifically us. This represents what it means to exist as Jesus did, recognizing that the, the purpose that God sent us to this earth and the purpose of our lives is so much deeper than acquisition and control and having places of power. This is the opposite of the way the world lives, amen? This is the opposite. And that's what we're called to this morning, to be reminded that it's not about having ephods and controlling people's access. It's not about punishing people because they didn't do as you told them to do. It's about submitting to God and following His guidance and direction even sometimes as we are following some parts of direction, it still calls, us, still calls us to be sharpened. As Jesus sat around with his disciples, he held on to a piece of bread and then he passed it around and he told them to take and eat. And every time that they did so, to remember that this was a symbol of his broken body and to do so in remembrance of him. In a similar fashion, with a common cup, he passed around to those disciples and told them that this was a symbol of the new covenant and that every time that they drank of the cup to do so in remembrance of him, and we join with him this morning. God, we come before you this morning recognizing that even in the midst of doing good and doing what you've called us to do and working hard to be your follower, even in the midst of those things, God, sometimes evil has a way of sneaking in in a direction that we may not have anticipated, has a way of tempting us at a core to who we are and a core to the separation that is caused by evil. And so God, especially for those that may find themselves like Gideon, where God has grown them immensely, remind them that not even Gideon was immune. Remind us all, not even Gideon was immune to the temptations of power and prestige and control. 
Help us to be people who know what it means to live sacrificially toward you and for you. We love you and we thank you, God. In your son's name we pray, amen, and you are dismissed. Have a great Sunday afternoon. Hello, this is Pastor Daniel Metters again. I hope this morning's message has both challenged your heart or maybe given you a word of encouragement. If you feel like you would like to reach out and maybe continue this conversation in any way, please feel free to email us at ecnradioresponse at gmail.com. We hope you are well and God bless.